Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and today I'm with Carolyn Bodges-Rolf. We're here to discuss Caroline's marvelous new book, The Baltic Story, A Thousand-Year History of Its Lands, Sea, and Peoples, which was published in the UK by Amberley and is due out in Kindle in August of this year. I have read it with great relish and interest, and I'm delighted that it brings Caroline to the New Books Network today. Caroline, welcome. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be with you. Now, your interest in the Baltics is longstanding, and I would love it if you could tell our listeners how you first came to be interested in the region and its history. Right. Well, uh, I, shall I start with myself a little bit? I, uh, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, originally, uh, when I was a teenager, I went to the uh, university in Perugia to learn Italian, the University of Foreigners, and then went back to London University to read Italian. But uh, I got married very soon after, and I went with my husband to Berlin. He was working at the time with the British liaison mission to the Soviets there. And that gave me a fantastic opportunity to actually visit some of the countries, uh, some of East Germany, uh, including Potsdam, which was out of bounds to most of us. Um, And after that, we actually then went on to Italy for five years, and uh, I was teaching in England for a bit. Um, But eventually I decided to go back to university and I went and read a, 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 I took a master's and a PhD at UCL and my topic for my doctoral thesis was on Voltaire and the Enlightenment and that sort of took me back to uh, to the days that I'd spent at Potsdam um, and I soon realized how much Voltaire had been involved with uh, the people of the Baltic. Uh, he'd written about Peter the Great. He'd written about Carl the Twelfth. He was constantly in correspondence with Catherine the Great. Uh, he was in correspondence with a Swedish queen, and he praised the, the Danish king. So, oh, and of course, we mustn't forget his sort of close colleague and companion, Frederick the Great of Prussia. So, I sort of saw so much about the Baltic suddenly appearing, how much he'd influenced them and how much they had influenced his writing. And this got me really interested in the area. And so then um, I began to research it more and I was invited to go uh, on various cruise ships to lecture about the Baltic when they were visiting that region. So that was really where the first interest came from. Well, and this is, a, uh, I think, a unique book in the canon of Baltic history because Many uh, many books look at either Scandinavia, Denmark, and Norway as one unit, uh, then the three Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Russia, Poland, Prussia, quite separate. But you've decided to bring them all together into one book, which is a, is a great gift to historians of the region. Can you tell us why you decided to, to organize the book in that way? Right. Well, um the fact was that I realised, again, not only working on the cruise ships, but my own research, how little had actually been written about the area as a whole for the average English reader. There were academic studies that focused on a particular uh, a place or event or person. Um, and of course, there are a lot of wonderful biographies now about the many great leaders who were here, endless books about, the, about Catherine, Frederick and the Romanovs. But there's very little about the people on the fringes who I felt connected those people to the other areas in the region. And so I wasn't trying in any way to separate them out. If, if that happens at all, it's more incidental. What I was trying to do was build a sort of basically chronological narrative of, uh, of the there's a whole story of the whole region, rather in the French way that a, an histoire is a story and a narrative. I was trying to build that narrative, um, sort of drawing the thread through the whole region and showing how the people linked and the countries linked. Uh, they were linked by trade, obviously, uh, wars and their treaties, um, and much intermarriage. And, of course, the tragedy about the intermarriage, it often led back to war again because there would be arguments about territory. Um, but I, I was. Uh, 
of course I was limited by space. If you're writing about such a big area over such a long time, you can't cover everything. So what I chose to do was to sort of concentrate on a particular country or person or uh, area that was playing the most significant role at a particular time. And, and inevitably, as the power shifted in the early part of the book, for example, it's very much in Denmark, which was controlling the entrance into the uh, Baltic through the sound, which runs past Copenhagen. Um, by the end of the book, we've arrived much more with Russia, the power. But the focus of the chapters shifts as the, the power shifts, if you like. Um, and I wanted to show how that progress went on. So one episode will lead into another. Uh, for example, in the second section, which I've called From the Middle Ages, uh, there's one chapter that looks at Denmark's union with its neighbour, Sweden. Um, then the next chapter is how Sweden saw that and how it then broke away and formed its own dynasty with the Vasa kings. And that leads me then on to Poland, where there were now two Vasa kings and the rift develops between them. So I think what I'm trying to say is that it's the narrative that dictates the order of the book and the way it's woven together. Um, I wasn't writing what I like a geographic journey about a geographic journey as perhaps you would do if you were writing a travel book. Uh, but it's a sort of journey through the historical themes and how they inter interplay with each other. Um, Although I still want the the chapters to stand enough on their own so that if somebody just wants to dip into the text, they can do so. And I think and I think you you succeed in that because um each chapter is as a whole complete, um, which is unusual again for a history book. Um, you've you've given us a composite look at um, as you say, Denmark, Sweden. Um I, I thought it was a very successful um way of doing it. Um, but there's one other point I might just mention here. The other thing I was very much wanted to do was to stress the human element. Uh, for me, uh, history comes alive through the people. Um, and if you go and look at a city or a town or a castle, whatever it is, a battlefield, if you don't know about the people who were actually involved there or perhaps responsible for it, it's very difficult to sort of really understand what it's all about. Uh, and so... Um, I, I very much concentrate on the people. Of course, that meant that it tended to be more the uh, rulers and the monarchs. Uh, that wasn't specifically my aim, but uh, I had to be dictated by what material was available. And of course, there's not so much in the remote past. And there's sadly very little about the ordinary people because they didn't have the personal documents and the records. But it's, it's with this human sort of approach, I'm trying to look at the history of the region. And how did you go about that? Did, did you work in the archives? Did you um, libraries? Yeah, what was your, that what was very your much. Like? I mean, I started very much by looking at the main characters, the main events, um, that, because obviously those are the ones you can't miss them just because everybody else has written about them. So I started there. And then with the use of, of uh, libraries and even online research into academic papers that perhaps weren't printed uh, and visiting places, uh, gradually other episodes and other individuals appeared. And then the decision was whether to decide that they added to the story or whether sadly they had to be excluded because there wasn't the space. But I was slightly dictated by trying to keep to the geographical space. Uh, in other words, the regions around the Baltic. Uh, I, I talk about Moscow, I talk about Krakow and even Cologne, but it's got to be, it was mainly focused on the cities and the places and the people who were in the immediate area. Uh, Berlin's a slight ex exception because obviously we couldn't miss Berlin out. But on the whole, it's the ones in the nearest radius to, 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 to the Baltic. I see. One group you have left out, and I'd like to talk to you about um, your decision to do that. You make very little mention of the Vikings. Um, and of course, this is for, for listeners, this is a thick book um, and it's a comprehensive history. But uh, can you talk to us a little bit about why you decide to begin with the Hanseatic League rather than the Vikings? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, uh, I, I did debate about whether to start with the Vikings, and I found that I was trying as far as possible to approach 
the story from the area of what had not been explored. Uh, it's certainly in English writing. There's quite a lot about the Vikings, uh, but it's always very much the same information because, again, as I say, it's a remote past, so we are all rather sticking to the same evidence. Um, and I thought, well, where am I going to start? If I, if I start at the Vikings, am I going to start with the very early Vikings or the later Vikings? So I thought, well, I certainly will refer to them, but I will take the story... Uh, as it began to sort of become more uh, about individuals. Again, the, the Vikings, uh, we hear their wonderful names. We don't know very much about them. So I thought I would use them as a starting point, but not go into an in-depth study of them. And it, it, you're absolutely right that there's so much Viking, particularly with the success of the television show. I think it's gone um, mainstream in in a way that it used to be reserved for sort of what we would call in the United States, nerds, but um, Vikings have really gone viral. Um, that's not the case with the Hanseatic League. Uh, I, when I talk to people about um, the Hanseatic League, people are a little vague. What is that? Um, what's its significance? And I think it it gets ignored in the sort of sweep of history. And yet it seems to me, particularly also from your wonderful opening chapter, that it was very, very influential on how things developed afterwards. And I wonder if you could take a few minutes to help our listeners get their heads around the Hansa and what it was and, and what its legacy was. Right. Well, it's, it was really, I think, a exceptional uh, phenomenon because it started with just a group of North German traders at the end of the 13th century. Um, at uh, the, the way it, word Hansa, we don't quite know, but we think it means a, a, probably a, comes from the word for a company or a guild. Um, it was actually only used as a term considerably later. But this early group of traders were were involved with the herring business, herring uh, trade, because at that time there were vast shoals of this these fish coming into the uh, into the Baltic. The shoals sort of migrated a bit later, and they weren't didn't come in quite the same numbers. But at this point they were coming in vast numbers and of course fish was essential it was a staple diet at the time particularly as the church insisted that on fast days you could only eat fish and they then were able to preserve this fish because they were lucky enough to discover there were these salt mines close to Hamburg and Lübeck which they could use the salt for preserving the fish and so um, those were two of the original very important cities. Bremen was also important. But Lübeck had a sort of special uh, status in a way because it was in the Baltic, but it was close to the uh, the overland route at the south of the, the, the um, uh, Jutland Peninsula that connected with, with the North Sea. And so it became more and more important. And gradually, as these towns' wealth increased, they began to trade in other commodities as well. And over time, they built up this vast network of towns, smaller trading posts, um, and even there were four what they called contours, which were really important sort of trading um, or, I don't know how we could sort of enclaves within towns in Novgorod in Russia. Uh, there was another in Bruges, and there was one in, up in Bergen, and there was one in London. So those were very important as well. But they they had other towns down the rivers of Germany, um, uh, uh, sort of at Cologne and places like that, uh, and they had connections through their trade much further afield to places like Lisbon and Venice. But over the years. As they became more and more dominant in the region, they would started sort of going to war, not only with the other towns and, and the other areas, but even they interfered in the, uh, the affairs of other countries. So they were involved in the Danish Civil War. Uh, they also helped Gustav Vasa to, to take the throne in Sweden. And they were even involved in the English Civil uh, War of the Roses, the Civil War of the Roses. So they actually had a great effect on people. They sort of changed the political and social dynamics, if you like, of the region. But all the time, they were a very disparate group. It was only an association. There was no overall authority to it. Um, and so at the most, they could exclude one of their members and say, well, you're behaving too badly. Uh, they were always 
reprimanding um, Bergen. It was behaving particularly badly, they thought. But, <laughs> but they, 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 they had no control. There was this thing called the Lubeck Law, uh, which uh, Lubeck by this time had really become known as the Queen of the Hansa. It was a sort of principal city. But um, the Lubeck Law was only concerned with building regulations and trade regulations. It wasn't with, uh, uh, with how people uh, ran their lives if you like politically, militarily, or whatever, um, and also they um, they had these sort of periodic days called Hansatag, which when the representatives from the towns would attend. But even that wasn't a very regular event. Not all the towns attended all the time, um, and so, sometimes there were more, sometimes there were less. Mm. But they were re- and sorry and. Yeah. No, I just going to say they were no, culturally at their peak, really, at the end of the 14th century, uh, by which time we don't know exactly. There's a sort of uh, uncertainty about this, but there were probably over 100 towns and many trading posts there all over the uh, over the area. Uh, and it was in that time that they were building these great, magnificent churches that are still there today. So that's one of the sort of the cultural heritages we have of it, usually made out of brick, not not on, on Gotland, which was an island in, in the uh, in the Gulf in the um, uh, Gulf of Bosnia. But mainly they were out of brick. Um, and just one other thing where they really influenced everybody was that uh, because most of them became Protestant over time, Cologne was an exception. It was a Catholic, it remained Catholic, but they helped the rise of the early new High German language that had been spoken by Luther, so that was another ah. way that they influenced the area. And am I right in, in thinking that that was the common language amongst the Hansa towns? Well, originally they spoke Middle Low German, Middle, uh, German. and then it, it, after they became Protestant, it, they began to adopt the new one that Luther had used, um, and they eventually died out. Really, it just sort of faded away in the. 17th century, uh, there were only nine people present at the last Hansatag in 1669. Uh, and it, it, the experts think that it is because really they were suffering by the um, development of new sea routes thanks to the explorations that have been carried out. And of course, the rise of, of, of new um, naval powers like the British and the, uh, and the uh, Dutch um, and so, and and furthermore, the these towns had suffered so badly during the terrible Thirty Years' War. They were very much in the middle of that. I see, and and the plague comes into play at, at this point as well. Yes, uh, yes, and well, that was sort of it was there would be sort of various outbreaks of plague, but certainly the plague did hit. I mean, it, it, in certain places, it, it wiped out certainly a third of the population, maybe half, but a lot were wiped out also by that Thirty Years' War. I see. I um I spend part of my time in Riga, uh, which is definitely a Hansa town, and I'm struck by the fact that um, when I go to Lubeck or Tallinn, it's, there's a very similar architectural style, not only in the churches and the town halls, but the layout of the of the city, um, the walls, and and the houses, the merchant houses, and is that. Is that right across the the Hanseatic League, or is that you? You very much find that in these sort of tall, narrow houses, which were sort of again dis- uh, um, ordered uh, by the Lubeck Law that they must have meet certain fire regulations and where they were to store their grain. And uh, there's a lot of that. It comes from that, and it was also this Lubeck uh, or this Baltic brick that everything tends to be built in in that area. Right. And at the same time, um, we have the Hanseatic League. We also have the Teutonic Knights, um, who are a fascinating group of military order. What relationship do they have with the Hanseatic League? And what what is their arc of, of history in the region? Well, in the 12th and 13th century, the popes, various popes, have been calling for a northern crusade against the pagans who were still living up in the Baltic area. Um, and in fact, some of the Germans uh, from, from Lübeck and Bremen had by this time, or around this time, they went off down to the Holy Land uh, to sort of deal, uh, to help the wounded uh, who had taken part in the uh, Third uh, Crusade. Um, but others were settling in, in the Baltic region. And then um, in 1226, there was a, a Duke Conrad of Mazovia, an area of Poland, who actually appealed to them for help because he was having trouble with the Baltic tribes on his borders. Uh, and so um, th- those tribes, unfortunately, were would eventually be wiped out, but they, they were there at that time. Um, 
And at this time, the Grand Master, uh, a man called Hermann von Salzer, he was a, a close a friend and advisor of the Holy Roman Emperor. And with his agreement, they were granted rights to any lands that they would conquer while dealing with the pagans. So over time, they increased their territory. And then in 1308, this is quite a significant point, which I mentioned in the book, they arrived at Gdansk in, in Poland today. And there, there was a, a terrible slaughter. We we don't quite know. There are varying accounts. The knights said about less than 100 are being killed. The Poles would say there were many thousand. We don't know exactly. But whatever, they took the town and then they renamed it Danzig. And that would be one of the uh, towns that would then trade with the um, uh, Hanseatic League as the other towns that they gradually had taken over. For example, you say Riga, uh, Tallinn or Rival, as it was called at the time, they all flourished under the, um, the, the control of the, of, the, of the knights while they were controlling the area. But, but uh, eventually uh, they, their sort of fortunes changed in about 1410 because at that time they were defeated in battle by the, the Polish king um, at the Battle of Grunwald or Tannenberg. And that was really the beginning of the end for them because within 50 years they were again at war with the Polish king and that was so disastrous, the 13-year war, that they had to give up their possessions in the West, which all then became part of Poland uh, proper, of the, of the kingdom, as uh, it was called Royal Prussia. And they went to the eastern part, where they were allowed to remain. Uh, well, they'd been there before, but they were allowed to remain there. But now, as fiefs of the king, they had to pay dues to him uh, while they were at their new headquarters, which is now uh, Königsberg. They'd left their earlier one near um, Danzig, which was uh, um, Marienburg or Malburg, but they were now at Königsberg. And they eventually, they, the, the order came to an end uh, in 1525, when the last Grand Duke at Königsberg became um, a, a, a Protestant. He converted to Protestantism, and the king made him the first Duke of Prussia. And it was his granddaughter who had married into the Brandenburgs. I see. I don't know how you keep this all straight, Caroline. Well, I'm hoping I'm not interfering too much, interrupting you too much. <laughs> no, not at all. No, I mean, so many different players. I want to I double back on something you've mentioned a few times, but I, I would like to do a deeper dive into it. And, and you mentioned that many of the Hansa towns um, became Protestants and, and the Grand Duke became a Protestant. What is it about the Northern European and the Baltic culture that makes them such easy fits? Uh, for Lutheranism um, and conversion to Protestantism. Gosh, that is it's uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a huge a, question. It's a huge <laughs> question. Um, I think certainly if we look at the Scandinavians first, various uh, monarchs and key figures did actually meet Luther, and they were impressed by him. And we know that the Reformation really developed uh, in response to the abuses that the the Catholic Church. Um, was allowing at this time, the, particularly the sale of the indulgences. And that had rarely been wildly unpopular right over the area, and not just in Scandinavia and uh, in the German areas, but also uh, other places as well. Um, and I think certainly with the Scandinavian countries, and I think you could probably in a different, for a different way, but you could slightly say it with some of the German states, it was a time when they were becoming more centralised. And... Um, Religion, I think, certainly played a part in certain cases. Of the in the Danish Counts' War in the 16th century, um, there was what part of the problem was there was some opposition to the future king Christian III's uh, devout Protestantism. But he, he was rather exceptional because when he became king, he allowed free religious worship as long as people didn't talk about it and didn't cause any problems. And as a result, in in Denmark. Uh, it, the Reformation was introduced very peacefully, quite unlike what happened in France and England and many parts of Russia, of Germany. But his rival in that civil war had been Christian II, and he'd certainly dabbled with both sides. For a time, he looked at the Protestant faith and then he went back to the Catholic one. Maybe it was sincere, I don't know, but it does seem to be a touch of pragmatism here. And we certainly find that same pragmatism that was in the case with Henry VIII in England, the Reformation came in there because of his wish to marry um, Anne Boleyn. And you find that slightly with some of the Scandinavian monarchs who certainly wanted to rid themselves of the church's authority and, and reform their countries. 
And certainly uh, Gustav Vasa, Gustav I, who, when he became a king, he also became head of the Swedish church. And he, as a result, he could gain financially and actually was able to reward his nobles and get their support by giving them some of the confiscated church lands. Um, but Sweden didn't move to Lutheranism. It was more gradual. Uh, it, it was only resolved at the end of that uh, 16th century when his son, uh, Carl the uh, Ninth, who was a devout Calvinist, as it happened, rebelled against his Catholic nephew, who was by this time King of Sweden and King of Poland. And having defeated him, he ousted him from the Swedish throne and uh, Sigismund went back to Poland. And then the Synod met at Uppsala and they declared that Lutheranism was going to be Sweden's um, one and only religion. But in answer to your question, I find it's very difficult because I think the, the Protestants certainly hated paying money to Rome. And they, dis <laughs> and they disliked the blatant wealth and opulence of the church, which was totally in contradiction to the teachings of poverty that they were telling everybody. But I think it's very difficult to say uh, what came first. It's all chicken and egg or nature or nurture. Um, were, they, were they ready, ripe for Protestantism or did it influence their character? And I think it's more the latter because the people's, the general people's way of life was very simple at the time. They didn't choose to live simply uh, by preference. It was they just had to, to survive. And certainly the monarchs and the nobles, even after the Reformation, uh, enjoyed having their glittering, if not uh, ex extravagant courts. But I think what you do find is once they started translating the Bible, and it was translated not just into the, the German, but also into Swedish, Danish and Finnish, it, it led to a sort of greater questioning of everything. Um, and although absolutism would carry on in the to the 18th century and in Denmark, in fact, to the 19th. Uh, I think that opened their minds and it made it easier then for them to introduce their democratic constitutions that have allowed the monarchies to survive to this day. So I, I don't know if that's an answer, but I just feel it's more something that came with Protestantism as opposed to they were just different from, from the Catholics. It was a sort of combination. You've in in your answer, you've um, talked a lot about the ebb and flow of Scandinavian politics, which is something I'm not sure um, people with just a passing understanding of the history of Europe spend a lot of time with. You have, um, and I wonder if you can answer the question that sort of I came to your book wondering about, which is Sweden, Denmark, Norway. They seem to have so much in common. Why are they still three countries um, instead of one country? They they had an attempt to become one country, wasn't very successful. Um, and can you can you walk us through that? Well, um, let, are we going to go back to the Kalmar Union? I think that's probably when you're the starting point. Well, that the union was really thanks to uh, one individual, Margaret, and she was the widow of the Norwegian king uh, and the daughter of the previous, by now dead, Danish king. And she'd also been invited to be the leader of the Swedes. And uh, so she had claims to all three countries. She wasn't, in fact, eligible to be queen in Denmark because they didn't have a female monarch. So she acted as regent and she was extremely powerful in that position until her death. But she saw the value of a peaceful union. And, and we're talking now about the time when the Hansa uh, were certainly exerting their influence in the area and causing problems for her. And there was also another threat she was facing. There were uh, bands of pirates, particularly these people called the Victual Brothers, who were actually wreaking havoc. So if she could bring the countries together, there was more chance that they could confront this problem. So she then persuaded her uh, these three countries in turn to adopt her great nephew as their king. Each in each case, he was king uh, king of each individual country as King Ed Eric. And then, shortly after that, in 1397, so we are right back in the 14th century, she brought them all together at Kalmar, and a union was agreed between these three countries to remain independent but to be united by this personal union through the king. And that worked very well while she was around. But after her death, uh, the Eric, who she had 
um, her nev- great nephew, he uh, would prove to be a poor ruler, and eventually he was deposed. Uh, I think interestingly, it was interesting actually he, uh, that Norway deposed him three years after the rest. So it shows still that there was this independence, but. The Union sort of limped on, um, but already by 1448, which was only a few years after he'd been deposed, uh, the Swedes decided that they wanted their own king. And they appointed this man, Karl Knutzen, who became um, Karl VIII. Um, he would twice be deposed, uh, but he actually died in office. And then after him, there were two regents who followed uh, within a year of his death. The first was a relation of his called Sten Stuart, who also was deposed for a while, but got back. And finally, another distant relation, Sten Stuart, the, the younger, he, he took the same name. He thought it was a good, good idea. But what I'm trying to say here is over the last 70 years of, of the Kalmar Union, nearly 50 of them, Sweden was trying to go, go, go it alone, we might say. Um, but it finally ended in the 1520s with uh, Christian II's overthrow and the establishment of the Vasa dynasty. And then over the next sort of centuries, Sweden and Denmark would f- frequently find themselves at war. It's a, a, they had multiple wars. Uh, it, the last one didn't happen until 1814. So it, it, there was constantly a, a, in battle against each other. Uh, so Norway, meanwhile, remained loyal to, to Denmark. Um, so I think their history, although they've got this unity at the beginning, their history remained divided. It, Norway's a bit more complicated because, as I say, it stayed with Denmark till 1814, very much as a province, and then became um, in personal union with Sweden for 100 years. But the, the two other countries, Denmark and Sweden, were rivals for so long. And even in the Napoleonic Wars, Denmark remained true to uh, Napoleon throughout, where Sweden was on the other side. So the conflict was remained. But I think what your question has brought up with me is, I, well, the thing I find so fascinating, although there were obviously comparisons between them, and there was repeated interconnection between these countries all around the Baltic. What is so amazing is that still today, there are some eight or nine countries around in this region, and they all have got their own language. They've all got their own um, culture, their own traditions. And it's that sort of mixture of diversity and connectivity, which I think makes the Baltic so particularly interesting. That is a wonderful way of, of putting it. For sure, <laughs> which which brings us to another country that has its um, own identity, um, and at one point was a great empire, and then uh, came under the the sway of Russia, and that's Poland, and Poland and Lithuania, which are a a, a great empire. Uh, again, not not a history that many people in the United States, anyway, delve deeply into. You have, um, and I wonder if you can walk us through the. Very, I mean, I think in a way, Poland was my favorite part of your book because it's filled with um, a, an astonishing range of people, um, very charismatic leaders, um, larger than life in a way. Um, so, can can you can you spend a little time on Poland for us? Yes. Well, um, I, I think I began discussing Poland in more detail in this book in 1386, as far as I, off the top of my head, when uh, the young uh, Jadwiga of Poland was married to the Duke uh, Jogaila of, uh, of the neighbouring Lithuania. And that started a sort of personal union between the, the two countries, just a union through their a family union, if you like, uh, beginning what became known as the Egolian um, dynasty, which would last for 210 years. Um, and it was during that period that Poland went through its its sort of golden age of art and learning. But finally, in, in 1569, uh, the two countries were officially united as the vast uh, uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was no longer just a personal union. It was now an official uh, Commonwealth of the two countries. And this brought in a new period that they called the Golden Freedoms. The, the, the Union guaranteed religious tolerance for everybody in the country. It, it was also the most democratic in, in Europe. It now had an elected king. And it gave new rights and powers to the Schlara, who were the basically the, the nobility. Um, but the problem about the Golden Freedoms is as time passed, the powers of that nobility increased and the monarch became, monarch became increasingly unable to sort of bring in the reforms that he thought were necessary. 
um, in Parliament, for example, the same as it was called or is called, it, it really became unworkable for him because a new thing had, had crept in called the Liberum Vito. And this had come about when one of the delegates had walked out of the, the chamber when he didn't like the measures that were being discussed. And everything was then thrown out. So if one representative said he, 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 he vetoed uh, an action, nothing happened. And you can just imagine that this really became, it, it sort of made the parliament stagnate and nothing could be worked, could be done. And it made it almost impossible for the king to, to control for the king to control the very excessive ambitions of a lot of the nobles and particularly the activities of the immensely rich uh, magnates who mainly lived uh, in the eastern part of the country where they had these vast estates uh, that comprised probably sometimes two cities they had their own private armies um, and uh, when they felt the need called for it they would even uh, go to war against the king so it was he was facing tremendous opposition in the country and his problems were then increased in in the mid 1600s when um, Poland suffered what was known as the deluge and this is when it was invaded by both the Swedes and and the Russians who completely ravaged the country uh, Sweden eventually left having not taken any land or um, uh, gained any land but they left the country in ruins but that certainly broke relations with Sweden for a very long time afterwards but at the same time, there were some high moments for them because just 20 years before that, uh, they gained more land from the from the Russians. And as a result, the, city, the, the, the Commonwealth now reached its maximum size. And it was it was the uh, it, I, I believe it added up to about a, a million square kilometers. It stretched literally from the Baltic right down to the Black Sea. And the other really even more high point, I think, it was in 1683 when the king, uh, Jan Sobieski, uh, arrived at Vienna to save the day at the last minute when Vienna was just about to fall to the Turks. So he was a sort of hero of Europe at that time. But by the 18th century, uh, the king of the time, this was Augustus the Strong now, the king of Saxony, who had been elected the king, he had become so hamstrung that he had to actually turn to Peter the Great for help. And Peter brought his troops into the country to, to help control affairs and also control the parliament. And at, it was at this time that the so-called silent same took place when the, the delegates weren't allowed to speak and the Liberum veto was, was, was prevented. But that sort of marks the beginning of the Russian dominance of the country. Um, and within a few years, they're involved in the war of Polish succession when they have to choose another king. And 30 years after that, uh, Catherine the Gate, of course, is able to uh, promote her candidate as uh, to be elected for the throne, uh, her former lover, Stanislav Poniatowski. And Paul, I always feel sorry for Poniatowski because he really tried his best to save his country, but he couldn't save it from the, the approaching destruction because by the end of that century, uh, the three big powerful neighbouring countries of, of Russia, Prussia and Austria had, in, um, had literally wiped the country from the map. They had carved it up in a series of three partitions, taking a bit more of it each time and then leaving it with nothing and it wouldn't really recover till the 20th century. Uh, rather hurried resume, I think, and, and yet and yet complete. <laughs> this 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 sort of brings us very neatly uh, into into a look at at Russia. You spend uh, quite a bit of time there. Um, in the early part of Baltic history, it seems to me Russia, apart from the contour at Novgorod, is kind of in the the sidelines. It's kind of off stage, waiting um, a little bit uh, a little bit separate, a little bit different. Um, and yet it bursts on the scene um, in the 18th century and then becomes the dominant power. And I, I think you could argue is very much a dominant power today in the region. Um, and I think, it, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a wonderful story because we have Peter the Great, who's another larger than life character who wants access to the Baltic Sea. Uh, can you take us through uh, Russia kind of coming on stage, then taking center stage? Yes, well, um, Russia had 
you're right, it, it was rather sort of at the sidelines. Although in the 16th century, uh, Ivan IV had actually invaded Livonia, uh, the region that today would be sort of loosely Latvia and perhaps parts of Estonia. He had invaded it, invaded, invaded it and started a really vicious war that lasted for 25 years. Um, but by the end of that same century, uh, Russia was having its own serious domestic problems in the time of troubles, when there was uh, utter mayhem in the country. There were various pretenders claiming to be the dead son of Ivan IV. Uh, there was multiple assassinations. There was war. There was invasion. It, it was chaos. Uh, but eventually, in 1613, uh, the... the uh, the leaders decided they were going to elect uh, a new czar and they chose a 16-year-old uh, Michael Romanov and that began the, the um, Romanov dynasty. But all this time, Sweden was growing more dominant in the region. And just four years after Michael became czar, uh, the two countries agreed a treaty, which um, resulted in Russia finding itself totally cut off from access to the Baltic um, and its important trade route. Sweden had taken the, uh, the, the lands that divided them from the Baltic. Um, and although after that deluge in Poland that I was mentioning a minute ago, they gained some territory from Poland, they remained cut off still from the Baltic for the rest of the century, uh, while Sweden continued to grow as a great power. So then, as you were just saying, of course, everything changed with Peter the Great, who not only was the first czar to travel to the West, but had also initiated this tremendous reform program in Russia. And he decided that he wanted to get that access back to the Baltic, and uh, uh, probably among other things. But he then decided to go to war with Sweden in 1700. And initially, uh, he was defeated by the amazingly sort of talented young uh, Swedish king. He was only 18 at the time, Karl XII. But eventually, with Peter having improved his army, he was able to uh, defeat Karl eventually down in, in, uh, in Ukraine at Poltava in 1709, and then went on over the next few years to ultimately bring about the total collapse of Sweden. And at that point, of course, Russia had become the major power instead of Sweden in, in this area. Uh, Russia um, had regained, sorry, regained its access to the sea. It had also taken some of the Baltic, what we call the Baltic states today, and it had taken part of Finland. And created a large capital city on the Baltic. As well, exactly. But but that wasn't the end of, of the Finnish, of the Swedish losses, because then, of course, a few years later, the, the Swedes wanted to get some of this back. So they declared war on Elizabeth, who then, Took, uh, succeeded in defeating them and took more of Sweden and also then told them who they were to have as their future heir to the throne. So she was really interfering in their affairs. And finally, Catherine was able to capture great swathes of the land uh, in, in the Baltic region when um, the, the third partition of Poland took place. So it was a sort of gradual development of power around the region. And Catherine, of course, brings us back to your first academic interest in the Enlightenment. And, and I think we think of her as the Enlightenment Empress of Russia. But I have said to, to some people that I think Catherine talked a good Enlightenment talk, but was unable to walk a good Enlightenment walk. She made many reforms, but didn't, didn't kind of go all the way. Um, can you talk a little bit about the reign of Catherine? I, I think it's I think she's arguably Russia's most capable ruler to date. Um, but but there's some inherent flaws in that reign, aren't there? Well, I think that's that's right. I mean, funny enough, throughout this book, I've tried to be very balanced in what I say about people. I want to show their flaws and their qualities. It's not a demolition of anybody, nor is it a sort of hagiography of writing about people saying they did nothing wrong. Uh, I personally think that Catherine certainly had her heart in the right place. She she uh, she called herself, as Frederick did in, 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 in um, Prussia, she called herself the servant of the state. She really wanted to do the best for her country. But I think what is rather sort of tragic is that uh, she had all these ambitions, but as time went by, she more and more saw the difficulty of what she was trying to do, that uh, these reforms that she knew were right, 
uh, she was hampered. She couldn't actually bring them all in because she was uh, her position largely depended on the nobles who who put her on the throne. She couldn't uh, ensurf them. It was going to cause a major problem if she did. She couldn't uh, bring in a lot of the changes that she knew the country needed. And then, of course, by the end of her reign, uh, she has she lives long enough to see the uh, the French Revolution breaking out when she begins to really question all the things that she's held dear for all her life that uh, has has the enlightenment ushered in this new terrible uh, 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 sort of uh, upheaval that the French Revolution is bringing throughout Europe. But I, I think that she certainly achieved a lot, She cert- but I don't think she achieved all that she wanted to achieve, put it that way. And what is noticeable, of course, she's the last one who will actually uh, leave, uh, uh, die still in, in power. I mean, after that, the the czars increasingly face problems right through to the uh, to the revolution. Right, which brings us to your final chapter, which you've dedicated to my favorite Romanov, actually, um, Empress Maria Fyodorovna, who is, of course, the Danish uh, Princess Dagmar, who comes to marry uh, Alexander III. Um, I was delighted to find her at the, at the end of your book, and I'm wondering why you chose chose her to end with. Well, I felt that a lot of the various reasons. First of all, I felt that a lot had been written about uh, uh, Nicholas II and um, the Empress Alexandra. Um, and I wanted to try and approach it slightly from a different angle. Um, and so I thought, well, why not look at it from the angle of Nicholas's own mother, who uh, not only uh, lived through the revolution and gives us a very clear idea of, of the problems as she saw them approaching, but she would actually survive the revolution, unlike the rest of, uh, like her sons and, and daughter-in-law. Um, but also more than that, I felt that she really rounded the story off because uh, her own life story epitomizes what I felt was trying to bring into this book, the connectivity between the various regions. Being Danish and being also Russian, she combines the whole story that I've been trying to tell. And um, I just felt that that would be a slightly different way to approach it. But I also decided I wouldn't take the, the, the book as a whole, uh, beyond 1914-1918. The the 20th century has been so well covered, uh, and I didn't feel this book allowed me the space to develop it the way that I could could do it with perhaps trying to find new uh, angles on it. Um, So I thought that Maria Fedorovna would be a sort of good way to sum it up. But at the same time, that left a few loose ends. And so for that reason, I included the the rather short postscript so that I could explain what happened to those other people who uh, have been introduced in, in, the, in the chapter of Maria um, and, and also allowed me to bring it right up to date with the fact that those countries who'd shared this long history throughout the book with these other nations, they finally reached their, um, the moment when they gained their full independence. And I hope that that ended the book on a sort of more positive note um, and, and, and sort of introduced it into the, into the new age. Uh, but at the same time, what we were talking about earlier, showing the, the strange mixture of connectivity and independence, the way that they are all with their own language and their own cultures today. And you have seen in in this modern era, you've seen the region under sort of the full flourishing of of, uh, Soviet dominance. You've also seen these countries as newly independent states. Can you talk a little bit about that transition and that change that you've witnessed in, in a way that I think very few foreigners have? Yes, um, I think... Is, I mean, it is extraordinary going back to these parts. As I say, I was in, in, in East Germany during the, the, the Cold War. And it is remarkable now to see the changes. I mean, I've been back to Potsdam st- since, and it has no bearing on what it was like before. It's beautiful now, but it's it's crowded, it's popular, whereas it had a sort of dreamlike uh, atmosphere at that time. It was rather like visiting something out of Sleeping Beauty, this this history waiting to be discovered, the, this, these beautiful palaces, but really deserted. Um, I think that one sees the, uh, uh, one can appreciate the pride of, of all these countries that have finally reached not so much Germany, because it was more a question of recovering what it had before. But when you go to the, the Baltic countries, I've spoken to various Latvian people and things, and, it, and the pride now that they've finally reached recognition as independent countries. Uh, 
I think strikes one immediately. Um, and, and, and it's got a sort of, these, these places have a sort of freshness about them because they are now setting out on their own particular story. I, I think that's definitely true. We had such a, a wonderful time in Latvia in 2018 when they were celebrating their slightly, slightly rigged um, 100 years of independence, but it was a national celebration of all that is um, Latvian. And it was a wonderful thing to see, particularly at the National Library, which I, I, I imagine you visited, which is just such a marvelous repository of history and culture and um, really, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And the, and, the, and the sort of event when they all held hands right across the country oh, to celebrate. Yeah. And the folk, so, folk music. And yeah, mm-hmm. Latvia is just, just a jewel. Um, I love it. Now, will you be headed back to the Baltic this summer? Uh, I, well, funnily enough, I've just had started writing another book uh, on, on the ah. Adriatic. So at the moment, I'm rather busy on my research in that ah. area. Uh, but uh, but I certainly want to get back to it soon because there's always just so much more to discover. Uh, it's a country that it's an area which is rich with treasures. Uh, there's so many uh, UNESCO sites. There's wonderful history. There's wonderful buildings. There are uh, fascinating people. Uh, I love going back. Then each time I go, I find there's something you to explore and discover well the adriatic book sounds fantastic and um are, is that is that are you how far are you in on that or um, are you uh, well, just it's getting started to, well uh, um my publisher said i can have another couple of years so oh, i good. think that there's still quite a lot of research to do <laughs> and, and will you take the same approach as you have in the baltic story i think so but it's 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 a very sort of organic experience because you you set out thinking what you're going to do and then there's i mean in a sense well i'm sure fiction writers find this the whole time but it's the same with this as you explore it you find new areas which you think could be developed which might add a certain difference to the book or uh, give another dimension to the to, to the study so it's very difficult to say exactly how it's going to go until you are sort of well on your way and then it begins to take over by itself well when you are um, ready to uh, tell the story I hope you'll come back and and tell it to us um, on the new books network thank you so much I would love to do that can you tell um, people where they can find you uh, are you on social media um, I have I'm on Twitter and I also now have a website uh, which good well we'll put put both of those in the in the notes um, but can you just um, say the addresses for us now that would be a difficult question okay because it's if you do google in my name Caroline Boggis Rofe uh, it's I think my Twitter one is is Dr Boggis Rofe and my other one is just Caroline Boggis Rofe all in one word well we'll certainly I, link those um, in the show I'm notes. sorry I should should have prepared those for you before not coming. to worry not to worry we will because I think <laughs> listeners will be fascinated to follow you around the Adriatic as I have been fascinated to follow you around the Baltic um, I want to remind everyone that the Baltic story a thousand year history of its lands sea and peoples is published by Adderley in the United Kingdom and will be available in the US on Kindle uh, at the beginning of August and I'm so delighted that it's brought Carol Caroline, to this fascinating discussion of a fascinating region. Thank you so much for your time today, Caroline. And thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.